Welcome to First Up, it is Rāpare, that it's Thursday the 25th of August, Kō Nathan Rārere Aho. Coming up, 130 people lose their jobs at Mount Ruapehu ski fields due to the lack of snow. Boris Johnson makes a surprise visit to Ukraine, it's nice. Uh, we check out, get it, what's on the government's shopping list for the supermarket duopoly with Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson and the Minister of Tourism says we don't want to attract low budget visitors to Aotearoa, a position that has upset some ba- backpackers and businesses. Backpackers have been a major part of what we do, and we've helped enable a few of them to come, you know, stay on and become residents in New Zealand here and build lives here. It's kind of devastating to almost say, like, everybody's welcome, but maybe not you guys as much. Welcome to First Up. Uh, I'm Nathan Rarere and we have an interesting show uh, all around New Zealand and the world today. And to begin, we go to London. It's our, uh, well, it's our good friend, our correspondent nowadays. Of course, she used to be a member of the team here at First Up. It's Ellie J. Kia ora, Ellie, how are you? Atamaria, Nathan. I'm good, thank you. Okay, so tell me about this. Boris Johnson, um, as if they haven't suffered enough, he's made another visit to Kiev. That's his third visit uh, as the Prime Minister. It's likely his last though, right? It will be. It might not be his last, I suppose, in a personal capacity, but it's likely to be his last as Prime Minister. And it was a bit of a surprise visit. I mean, we're hearing as well that there has been a ceremony in his honour, and now we're starting to get these pictures uh, and videos that are kind of filtering through. But when the news broke earlier, it was quite unexpected. So it was accompanied as well by a tweet from uh, Boris Johnson that said, what happens in Ukraine matters to us all. That's why I'm in today and that's why the UK will continue to stand with our Ukrainian friends. I believe Ukraine can and win, will win this war. So it's it's to do with as well, it's um, Ukraine's Independence Day at the moment, that's 31 years of independence from the Soviet Union and plenty of world leaders have been showing support for Ukraine in, in various ways and pledging support. Um, the UK too, so there's been a, a package promised worth £54 million, so over £100 million Dollars and that includes uh, drones, anti-tank munitions, um, that kind of thing as well. Um, and he also, while he's been there, Boris Johnson has been urging the international community um, to kind of stay the course. He said, for the past six months, the United Kingdom has stood shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine, supporting this sovereign country to defend itself from this barbaric and illegal invader. Um, so he says, what happens in Ukraine matters to us all, and he's explained why he's there. He's kind of saying he's delivering um, this message. So he's also been given, he's received Ukraine's highest award, which can be bestowed on foreign nationals, which is the Order of Liberty um, for this support. And I mean, this is his last few weeks in office. And so far, he has come under a lot of criticism for not really um, handling things while there is this ongoing energy crisis, this cost of living crisis going on here. Um, and But I think this is this is one thing that he knows is going to be part of his legacy. There'll be Brexit, there'll be COVID, and also this kind of making a making a stand and having this very visible um, visit 
visits to Ukraine and also visible good relationship with the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, as well. So I think he'll want this he'll want this to be part of his legacy. And he's been saying that the only reason he'll sort of put pressure on the next leader is if they don't um, show that support and if they don't maintain um, this relationship, which he's saying is very important. It's also um, today news came out as well that the UK had imported no fuel whatsoever from Russia in the whole of June. And that's the first time this has happened since they began um, these records about 25 years ago. So exports from Britain as well to Russia have stopped and it's all part of it's all part of the same the same thing really and i think that that's why that's why people are talking about this a lot and yeah. that's why he's he's there as this visible presence um so that he's the still the current leader let's talk about the ones that want to be the leader i think we might get time to see it so liz truss I, I saw her being applauded for saying she'd blow up the world on behalf of the uk that was nice um but so she says she wants to bring back grammar schools what else is happening in this race for the tory leadership yeah, I feel like, well, I feel like I've been talking about this for years and yes. we've been talking and it feels like <laughs> it has been going on for years. So we'll try and go quite quickly uh, through it. But the the thing that's happening at the moment is just hustings. So a huge number of these things where they, um, both candidates, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, are going around the country to different towns. They stand up in various towns across the UK and have these um, debates and speeches in front of Conservative Party members. And so the latest was last night in Birmingham. It was the 10th of these that has happened since this has begun. And there is another one tomorrow night in Norwich. And then there's another one in London next week as well. And as you're saying, each one is a lot of these um, policies and promises. And there was lots of talk last night about calling people woke or making a stand against anti-wokeness. So uh, Liz Truss said she wants to push back against identity politics of the, le- of the left she talked about um, reducing taxes and uh, she doesn't believe in taking money and giving it back in benefits. Those new grammar schools too as well. It's all kind of going towards the support that they know they have and trying to get support from the Conservative Party membership base before they vote because I think there are still quite a lot of votes left to come in. Um, Interestingly Rishi Sunak has kind of changed his strategy a bit and he's presenting himself as more of an underdog in the situation because he knows Liz Truss is out in front at the moment and I think Rishi Sunak knows that he has to, um, everyone likes an underdog and he has to really kind of change his strategy a bit but it feels like at the moment more of the same, more promises, more policies and still two weeks to go until we'll find out what's going to happen. Yeah indeed, I love that you, that you were used a word today, hustings. That I think it was great. I'm going to look for that one and I hope people use it more. Thank you very much, Ellie. There she is, uh, Ellie J, who's joined us there out of the UK with all the news there. Of course, you, you heard um, Ellie mention that it's Independence Day in Ukraine, uh, but events in Kiev have been banned due to fears of renewed strikes by Russian forces. Today also marks six months since the Russians invaded Ukraine, with President Zelensky issuing a rallying cry to his people. He says that victory is the only way for the war to end. The BBC's James Waterhouse has this story. As history has shown, the more Russia tries to pull Ukraine in, the stronger people's sense of identity becomes. On the outskirts of Kiev, this factory used to make hotel uniforms. Now it's flags. Lots of them. These are very dear colours to us. 
Every Ukrainian feels these colors and we see them in everything, in the sky, in wheat. We have been making flags every day for the past few months. This gives us pleasure and joy because our work is useful. Okay, so welcome to the Wednesday meeting and everybody be off their laptops for the meeting. Thank you. Another symbol of Ukrainian defiance is here at the Kiev Independent, an English language news site set up weeks before the invasion. Be published either today or tomorrow. Within days, their online following went from tens of thousands to millions. Its editor describes it as the voice of Ukraine and the world's window into it. We are, of course, all um, very much aware of the sacrifice that it took to to get us all here to this Independence Day, and um, you know, thousands of people who were killed, both civilians and military. I think it's probably the most important Independence Day that we'll see in our lives. On this day last year, President Zelensky donned his now unfamiliar dark suit, with his military putting on this show of strength. Russia had already started to gather troops on the border, and Ukraine's resilience would soon face the ultimate test. This is the same square today, with rows of captured or destroyed Russian tanks in what is a display of defiance. But how independent is Ukraine, with the Russians now occupying a fifth of this country, and it being almost completely reliant on weapons from the West? For one former president who campaigned against Russian influence, sovereignty isn't just about weapons and territory. For me, first of all, the benchmark of independence is the strength of spirit, the power of national spirit. Today I can say with confidence that 42 million Ukrainians speak in one voice, and that allows us to face any enemy, including Russia. This Independence Day poses some difficult realities. Criticisms over why Ukraine didn't act on warnings from the West and the country's continued dependence for help to stay independent. That was James Waterhouse reporting from Kiev. Thank you, drummers. Uh, it is a quarter past five. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity, and our group of friends. Very keen for your feedback today. So the tourism minister came out saying, like, look, we've, we've got to look for high-value tourists now. Uh, causes a bit of worry amongst, obviously, the backpack industry. So I would like you to know, what do you think of that tourism? Should we be hanging our hat on what they call high-value tourists? What do you want, high-value tourists? Or I guess volume tourists is the one you want. Where, where are you at? What do you think? Um... Just as long as, who were those ones, the, 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 what were they called, the ones that were on the North Shore and they were terrorising people, the English family, the, the tree, <laughs> that, that, was, that was an interesting time. Unruly tourists, thank you Jeremy, yeah, unruly tourists, so maybe not unruly tourists, but should we be hanging our hat on high value tourists? Text us on 2101 if you like to do it that way, or you can email first up at rnz.co.nz. If you're not doing that, stay with us because we go to Europe now, whereas we just heard Ukraine's Independence Day celebrations have been muted under that threat there of Russian airstrikes. Uh, but there is many other things going on. Uh, with me now from Sweden is Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland. Uh, kia ora, Dr. How are you? Fine, thank you. Morena. I want to talk about your neighbours, uh, specifically the Prime Minister, Finnish Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, um, or Marin, I think probably, has apologised, had to apologise for the second time in a week. What did she do this time? 
Well, she's apologizing about a picture that first appeared on the TikTok account of a female model and influencer in which the model is kissing another woman, not Marin, but another woman, while lifting up their tops with a Finland sign covering their breasts. Now, Marin, Marin apologized for the photo, saying it was inappropriate and shouldn't have been taken. And her apology came after she made headlines around the world last week when video emerged of her drinking and dancing during another private party at which unsubstantiated reports claim drugs may have been consumed. Now, 36-year-old Marin became the world's youngest prime minister when she was elected in 2019. And she's won praise for her handling of the COVID pandemic and for leading Finland out of decades of neutrality to apply for nation membership. Ah, yeah, I, I don't know. It seems like she's always going to be apologising for things. The, the, the poor, I, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with the party picture. She's allowed some time off, isn't she? But anyway, that's just my thought. Let's move to Hungary now. This is interesting. The bosses of Hungary's meteorological service have been fired. Can you tell me about that? And what's fireworks got to do with the sacking? Well, the government organised a, a major fireworks display with some 40,000 fireworks to be launched from 240 points along a five-kilometre stretch of the Danube River to celebrate the country's national holiday, St. Stephen's Day. Now, the Met Service weather experts announced extreme weather warnings, prompting the government to postpone the event till next week, and the postponement was made seven hours before the scheduled start. However, the weather stayed calm and the weather's uh, services top experts were sacked. But in fairness to the weather experts, there was predicted rain, but it changed direction and struck parts of eastern Hungary instead, missing the capital entirely. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry not, about that. Yeah, so, no, it's just not one of the reasons you think you're going to lose your job at the meteorological service. There you go. Hey, um, tell me about this. So two new books have been withdrawn by the German publisher. They've got accusations of racism and cultural appropriation. What are these? Well, leading publisher of children's books in the German-speaking world, Ravensburger Verlag, is pulling its latest books on Winnetal. Now, bookstores, including Amazon, have pulled the books off its shelves. Winnetal is a fictional Native American hero who made his debut in 1875 through author Karl May, who died in 1912, and is considered to be the first best-selling author in the German-speaking world. Now, the stories focus on the friendship between a German immigrant to the U.S. and Apache leader Winnetal. The books have become so popular that they've spawned numerous films referred to as sauerkraut westerns. That's like the spaghetti western. That's brilliant. Hey, um, tell me about this one, though. This, uh, I'm not sure where to go with this one. A prisoner has been euthanized in Spain. What, what's the twist in this tale? Well, Marin Eugen Sabal died earlier this week after an unprecedented court decision which did not oppose his request for euthanasia. Now, the 46-year-old Romanian security guard shot three colleagues and a police officer in December in the northeastern city of Tarragona. Several officer, uh, several others were, were also injured in the chase. Now, he was detained by police after officers shot him in the spine in an abandoned farmhouse leaving him with an irreversible spinal injury and one leg amputated. And Sabal said he carried out the shooting spree because he was suffering hell at work and accused his bosses of racism. Oh, horrible ending. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherlin, with all the news out of Europe.
21 minutes past five. I'm Nathan Rarity and you are listening to First Up here at RNZ National. So coming up, some backpackers in the country are none too happy about the tourist and minister, uh, tourism minister, implying they're not the sort of high-value tourists we want here in Aotearoa. And we're going to speak to Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson about the government's latest attempt to bring down the cost of food in supermarkets. It's uh, time to check in with the Local Democracy Reporting Programme. And this morning we are up in Northland uh, with the one and only Susan Botting, who's been looking into some important issues at stake in the upcoming local elections. We have quite a lot of change normally in local government, but this is like a tsunami of change, really. We've got three mayors going. We've got all the CEOs will have changed over by the election time. We've got deputy mayor going in one council because the mayor's gone. When you put that in the context of Three Waters Entity A, for example, in particular as well, Phil Goff is also going. So those are all the councils in Three Waters Entity A who have quite a lot of experience between them, all departing at once. Is there any indication as to why they're all leaving at the same time? Well, my hunch really is that we have a bit of leadership churn naturally, but the things that are going on in New Zealand uh, at the moment, it's just making a hurricane for local government to exist inside. And so it wouldn't surprise me if other things like this are happening around New Zealand. Perhaps not to such a big scale. So tell me about who stepped forward then to say, all right, I'll be this. Have you got any front runners yet? I think that it's a bit early to tell at the moment. We've got 22 mayoral candidates for three positions. All up, we've got 191 candidates for everything across the region, including the regional council. What's really interesting, I think, is the new Maori wards. The whole region has Maori ward representation for the first time. In the far north, the new Maori ward up there has 18 candidates standing for four places, Ngātai o Tokarau Maori ward, 18 candidates wow. for four places. That's pretty exciting Yeah, it is. for the local it's people up there. A lot of people that want to be a part of the representation. So they're standing for this, and I'm wondering here, you know, when you get a cohort of people that all of a sudden apply for these sort of positions there as well, sometimes you get some block groups arriving. Are there any concerns at all that these new leaders could be quite disruptive for the region? The... Leadership change is about a lot of things. And we've got, you know, three waters. We've got reform of local government. We've got the Resource Management Act reform, all sorts of things. And so in any council, you've got representation across the whole society. And from there, that group has to work out how to come to a solution on a particular issue. And not everyone's going to get what they would wish, but it's a pure sort of democracy in action, I guess. Well, that, so, that's it, um, isn't it, with that, that whole meeting at the table to discuss things? No one's going to walk away with 100% of it. No, and I was talking to one of the mayors yesterday, and she said to me that it was a dis- always a disappointment to her that not everybody can get what they want, but the purpose is that, you know, the council is representing society, and from there, the people work together to come to a solution. I'm 50 and I'm thinking people my age going, why can't these councils just decide on things? And I'm going, do you not remember in the 90s when we were flatting and we used to go to Video Easy and try and pick a video on Sunday? You couldn't even oh. do that, right? It's hard enough oh. there. What are the challenges that these mayoral candidates you know, are going to inherit? I think really it is that hurricane of change. It's a local government landscape that's changing before our eyes and I'm not sure how much New Zealanders realise about that. And it's really important that people vote and make their position known by voting because they can't complain later if they haven't voted. As I said, we've got the three waters, we've got local government reform, we have co-governance, the new Murray wards, 
I could go on. There's a big, huge, long, and the Resource, resource Management Act is a big lot of change, and it's different times. I think what local government is going to look like compared with what local government does look like now, I think those are going to be quite different things. The other thing is that I'm not entirely sure that all candidates realise that if you have a particular walker that you're on, doesn't mean to say that that's the walker that's going to get get across the line because, as I said, it's a democratic process between everybody. And it's about governance, not management of council. That's Elias Susan Botting. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Mm, it's the day of our life we call the 25th of August. Lots going on today. A man born 90 years ago, he died last October. He was uh, the man who finished third in the 1953 Mr Universe Tallman's Division. Sean Connery, just an actor with incredible range. Uh, could really nail accents like nobody on earth. I mean, go through his, his catalogue. Russian U-boat captain. Uh, Irish-American police officer. Uh, English gentleman. And Connery could nail all of those. He was, he was incredible. Uh, happy 52nd birthday to you, Claudia Schiffer. Also to you, uh, Elvis Costello, who his parents were like, what do you call yourself that for, Declan? Come here. Declan McManus, of course, his uh, birth name. Born 73 years ago, Gene Simmons from KISS. So I fell down a rabbit hole uh, about him. He was born in Israel. His real name is Chaim Witz, uh, the child of Hungarian uh, immigrants who his mother had actually survived uh, a concentration camp uh, to move to Israel. Uh, anyway, chose the stage name in tribute to a rockabilly singer in the day called Jumpin' Gene Simmons. And when Gene Simmons and his mum moved to New York City, he, at school, was really good at typing, which was incredibly rare for males to be typists in those days. And this guy, the one with the tongue and the blood and the everything, uh, he worked as a typist uh, and as an assistant to the editor of Vogue. He also spent several months as a sixth grade typing teacher, so basically teaching standard four kids how to do typing. Then he had his tongue waggling in front of the stage. Um, happenings on this day. In 1825, Uruguay, which is, of course, one of the other countries of the world, which really upholds the Fijoa. They got independence from Brazil on this day. In 1910 on this day, the Yellow Cab was founded in New York City. Right now, you can hear the honking of horns if you've got it in your head. 1920, the first day in New Zealand that someone flew over the Cook Strait. It was Captain Ewan Dixon carrying mail from Christchurch to Upper Hutt. Uh, a movie about two women fighting over a pair of shoes, The Wizard of Oz, uh, came out on this day in 1939. But none of those are more important than this. On this day in 1958, the first packet of pre-cooked instant noodles hit the shelves in Japan. Thank you very much, Momofuku Ando, uh, for inventing ramen noodles on this day. It's business. It's business time. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. And with us from the business team is Mr Giles Beckford. Kia ora Giles, how are you? More than anything, I'm well, thank you. I thought the two-minute noodles ties together a lot of talk today. Obviously grocery prices, obviously <laughs> cheap, cheap tourists that only cheap. eat noodles. Um, of course. So As they're what? known in the islands, they call them noodlers. Where I did a documentary through there and they were going, oh, it's just the noodlers, the sharp neck noodles. We sh- should we go tourism? What do you, what do you make of the, um, the tourism uh, call from well, yesterday? Well, Stuart Nash has been talking about this for quite some time. He has, and yeah. Remembering before COVID hit us, we had somewhere in the region of 4 million overseas visitors in a year. Uh, which was just you know, a deluge. But I'm not sure that you know you break down the percentage uh, makeup of that. I'm not sure that many of them were 
really backpackers. You know, the bulk of them were just general run-of-the-mill, uh, hol- pa- perhaps package holiday, but you know, short-term visitors. Um, you know, in on the plane, uh, hit all the tourist heights, um, you know, hotspots here for ten days, a couple of weeks as part of, uh, perhaps of a broader trip uh, through Australia and the region. You know, it's it's folks like us who sort of f- sit between uh, the backpackers and the well-to-do that uh, they'd like to encourage. Mm. So, as always, you know, it was worth something in the region of $15 billion a year before the pandemic. Uh, and you, know, you have to say that the volume is probably what provided much of the value uh, and the income. So, you know, and how do you decide? In the end, if you've got a business uh, you know, in Queenstown or um, in Auckland or Rotorua, um, and the bulk of your business are just youngsters coming through and buying two-minute noodles and a you know cheap coffee and a sandwich, if you're doing well out of them, you don't want to see fewer of them. You want to see more of them. Meanwhile, those who are really well off. You know, they hit only specific places and quite often they don't sort of you know, emerge and just splurge in a big way. They tend to be perhaps a little bit more specific about what they patronise, who they patronise. Uh, you know, so once again, you know, it comes down, we have to make some interesting value judgments here. And it's not just us. I mean, they're doing it all around the world where there's been mass tourism. But um, mm. I think it's a little simplistic just to say, you know, we want fewer backpackers and we want more rich people. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because it reminds me a bit of like uh, Machu Picchu, which now they've said, okay, we're cutting down the amount of people on it because it's ruining it with that. And I know that a lot of people thought that around a lot of the trails that we have going, you can't run that many people through it and still have this beautiful place for us to put in brochures to bring people from overseas. But thank you, Giles. We'll ask the audience about that as well. 2101, what do you make of that? Do you Are you, are you for the volume or do you think let's make ourselves a premium location? Like, What do you think? But would you like more people to experience the the world that that you live in uh, by coming to have a look, or do you think um, no? Two one oh one. You can text us, and you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at ten two seven. So we go to the money markets now, um, and your uh, New Zealand dollar is worth sixty one point nine six US cents, eighty nine point six five Australian cents, sixty two point oh four euro cents, which puts the US dollar more valuable. So it's soccer today, not football. Uh, the British pence fifty two point three. Uh, that's what you can get of those uh, pence for your New Zealand dollar 4.25 yuan 84.75 Japanese yen and if you're going to Bali because I don't know why you got a surfboard or something uh, you can get a t-shirt with Cuda lines you can buy one New Zealand dollar uh, will buy you 9,196 Indonesian rupiah Okay, well, as the Marlborough region continues to deal with the impact of wild weather, supply chains of food and medications are being disrupted across the board. However, the Civil Defence has partnered with local pharmacies and the Marlborough Primary Health Organisation to get isolated residents the medication that they need. Here's Marlborough's PHO Chief Executive, Beth Tester. It's always a challenge in events like this. We've had a bit of practice in the past with the earthquakes. I think each time we actually get more innovative and uh, we work together more as a team. So I think all um, both pharmacies and general practices as well as the PHO and DHB are all working together to make this work for these medication drops. We were lucky that normally in an emergency situation you get three days of 
emergency medication given with the isolation and rurality of this population who were wanting medications it was ridiculous to fly a helicopter in for three days so we actually went to the ministry and got a dispensation to have a month's worth of normal medications free be able to be um, dispensed by the pharmacies without having to go through a general practitioner as well. The Health Authority is also arranging to work with the region's water taxis to ferry medication to people in isolated or cut-off areas. Beth Tester says people are being asked to think about what they need a week in advance. It just highlighted to me though that people run quite close to the wind with their medication and often leave it to the last minute to actually pick it up and so... um, it's certainly for me, if I lived in a rural area, I'd be certainly having at least a week's worth with me. So that's a lesson learned, I think, for all of us over this. But yeah, it's been a smooth, reasonably smooth. It took a few days with a few twitches, but we've got the process in place now and everyone knows their roles and it's just moving seamlessly and the medication's going out. The various road closures are impacting other health services too. Certainly from the hospital point of view, they're having to get the laundry truck going through Kaikoura. And um, so, it, and the no no movement between the two hospitals. Mental health patients are having to go. Uh, acute mental health patients are needing to go to Christchurch because of the road closures. It's affected staffing. For us, staff were trapped by the floods. So yeah, it's had a huge impact. I think we're planning our psychosocial response to actually help people with anxieties and dealing with the um, things that they're finding. A lot of people don't know maybe yet that their batches or their houses down the sounds have been compromised. Or, And so I think over time we find normally in these events it's about three months in when the financial impact starts hitting people. Um, it's quite romantic initially to sleep in a boat shed, but after a while it will lose its appeal for people. So yeah. We're expecting in a, you know, a few more weeks to get a huge demand for welfare and wellbeing requirements here. Marlborough Primary Health Organisation Chief Executive Beth Tester. It is 22 to 6 right now if you're listening live uh, to us on the podcast. It's whatever time it is where you are right now. Uh, Queenstown businesses want New Zealand to attract high quality tourists, however not at the expense of those on a budget. The Tourism Minister has confirmed the country won't market towards budget visitors who, in his words, travel around the country on $10 a day eating two-minute noodles, but says the welcome mat will be rolled out for all tourists. Now that's echoed in the latest global campaign from Tourism New Zealand. Reporter Tess Brunton is in Queenstown. Bert Haynes arrived as a backpacker in New Zealand 20 years ago. He's now the co-director of Future Hospitality Group, which operates several businesses in Queenstown. Came here for six months, turned into a year, turned into two, turned into five, turned into residency, turned into now a business owner, family. I've got, I've got an incredible life now built here. He says we need stories like his now more than ever. That's why we can't lose sight of attracting budget travellers. Backpackers have been a major part of what we do and we've helped enable a few of them to come, you know, stay on and become residents in New Zealand here and build lives here. It's kind of devastating to almost say like everybody's welcome but maybe not you guys as much. He thinks there are a lot of misconceptions. Maybe they're sacrificing at the grocery store on a two-minute noodle but they're buying a $400 bungee jump or they're buying a luxury experience or they're going to pay $250 for a round of golf. There's still all aspects. Yeah, I think we're just missing the mark on that one. In nearby Gibston Valley, Oxbow Adventure Co. Managing Director Darb Richmond says backpackers are a target market. They are normally here the longest 
and they spend a lot of money on activities like these. So I've worked in booking centres and that before, and it's amazing. You know, they've got their bucket list items they want to do when they come to New Zealand, and they're going to spend money on it. That is probably wiser where they spend it. And he has backpackers on his books. Without having all these backpackers here, we don't have the workers. So, you know, we've been advertising for three months now, trying to get frontline staff and stuff, and just cannot get them. He says the tourism industry was built on the back of backpackers, so they shouldn't be ignored. It's 20 to 6, I'm Nathan Rarity, and you're listening to First Up on RNZ National. So between now and 6 o'clock, we'll catch up with uh, Morning Report. Also, we'll find out too about this. the poor uh, ski field workers uh, at Mount Ruapehu who lost their jobs yesterday, 130 of them. Also, we asked the Deputy Prime Minister, Grant Robertson, about the government's latest attempt to bring down the cost of food in the country's supermarket. <laughs> The professionals of Morning Report are here, everybody. We're holding up our Morning Report scarfs like a football crowd because here's Susie Ferguson. <laughs> Susie! Susie! How are you? Kia ora, good morning. I don't know why that fun, came to my head. You. Sorry, it's been weird, eh? It's, uh... I have the mental image, though, now, and that's yeah, it. Yeah, like that? Cool. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. What is happening this morning on Morning Report? Well, we are going to be talking about six months of the war in Ukraine and as it's celebrating its Independence Day, the first New Zealander fighting alongside Ukrainian troops is killed. More details on that coming up after seven o'clock on Morning Report. Also throughout the programme, we'll be talking about the supermarkets and uh, foodstuffs and countdown being forced to kind of loosen their grip on that wholesale end of the market. Will it lead to lower prices, though? Uh, we will be speaking to the new speaker as well. And, of course, also uh-huh. taking a look at a new friendly, apparently. This is a funny word to use in this context. A friendly foreign wasp that's a, been what? introduced to the Manawatu and Whanganui. Oh, no. A friendly no. wasp. I'm, so that's uh, nice. Please don't let this be one of those, hey, I'm going to introduce possums. They're great for hunting. You what know? could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? We're just going to bring mm. this in. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, Susie Ferguson there with all that's happening on Morning Report uh, after six. Well, Mount Ruapehu is a shell of its usual snow-laden self this winter. It's been one of the warmest, most humid and wettest winters on record and it's caused minimal snowfall and retention there. As a result, Ruapehu Alpine Lifts, which operates the Whakapapa and Tūrua ski fields, yesterday laid off more than 130 of its seasonal staff. Sam Clarkson owns the Scotel Alpine Resort on the Whakapapa side of the mountain, also runs an edge-to-edge ski hire company. He's been, this, been through this before, I think it horrible year in 1998 we experienced what was called the season from hell sam uh, is with us right now kia ora sam thank you very much for for being up with us early so you've already had the season from hell so is this like going through a movie called season from hell 2 for you <laughs> kia ora nathan yes it is uh back to those 98 days where we all were a bit stunned by the lack of snow but we you know we prevailed in the end yeah I'm thinking here, you know, like quite often you'll see when you've got local knowledge of an area like you've got, you can have a look and go, oh man, the snow hasn't even come down to here this year. What what was the first indicator to you when you think, oh, this season's going to be poor? Oh, uh, when they declared the La Nina coming through in its third year, I made a call many months ago thinking uh, this season's going to be a problem. Uh, 
so it's it's been this horrible year. Then there's the news yesterday of of a whole lot of people losing their jobs, which is is such a shame. I saw someone on Twitter claiming like it's lots of New Zealand workers and and not foreign ones. Is is that right? Do you know? Is that true? No, oh, it's a combination of both. In a way, losing their jobs is probably a good thing in that the agony is over for them of waiting. They can now get on and find work elsewhere. And, you know, if we're hearing from all over the country people are short of staff. So I think those people will just move on and get other jobs. It's the local businesses and the ski area company itself that have to stay and pick up the pieces. Yeah, hard, hard to like move a ski hire company to Napier, right, to, to try and get something there like that. So um, so how are you going to cope as a business? Oh, well, we have had the joy of three years of COVID with all the border controls, um, which has been really bad. Um, now this comes along. What we're going to do is pick ourselves up and look forward to the summer when the borders are open, and we'll be right. We we battle on. Oh, good on you, good on you. I just think so. You know, like you said, you, you've had that. You've been missing out because of COVID. Um, I like your positive spirit, which I think is good, which you kind of need now. Is it a common uh, area? You know, around you is is this one of those things where other business owners realise that they've got to go through this as well? Or have you maybe got some experiencing it for the first time? No, they've all committed suicide. I'm the only one left. <laughs> No, we can't be doing that. Thank you, sir. <laughs> On the show, okay. So, I mean, it sounds like you've all got together. Like, do you guys? Um, how do you approach this? Do you approach it as a bit of a like a, a group council together on on what you're going to do? Look, in all, in all seriousness, we had a um, social get together, business owners, just on Sunday, and just talked it through. We will just plod on because you have to. It's a case of doing the best with what you're dealt with, and. You know, the ski seasons will come round again. This is a La Nina weather pattern. It's not the end of skiing. It's just a weather anomaly. I remember back in 1998, uh, us locals thinking, oh, I wonder if we'll ever ski to the bottom of the mountain again. Well, of course we did. We've had plenty of great ski seasons since then, and we will again. So, yeah, we'll just continue. Yeah, oh, good on you, Sam. Thank you very much for your time. Sam Clarkson there uh, owns the Scotel uh, Alpine Resort, if you've been there. Go go there next year when it's snowing, eh? Well, look, the government says that New Zealand's supermarket duopoly has a year to start cooperating with their rivals, or it's going to force them to. It was announced yesterday that foodstuffs and Woolworths basically have a year to open up wholesale supply to smaller grocery operators before they're forced to by the Grocery Commissioner. I discussed this with the Finance and Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson and started by asking, why wait a year? Why, why can't you just do it now? Yeah, because it isn't a simple exercise is the short answer there. I mean, the wholesale distribution process, making sure that there is a fair price set, making sure that commercial terms can be agreed, and even just simple logistical issues around supplying other people, how that will be done alongside the supplying that they do to their own supermarket. So I, I think we have to understand 
it takes a little bit of time. We do want them to do this and do this themselves and come to those agreements themselves because that will be the best and, and we think probably the fairest way of it happening. But what we're signaling really strongly is if they don't do that, if they're not prepared to come to those commercial terms with their competitors, then we will intervene and make sure it happens. And, you know, I think New Zealanders need that. It was made really clear to me, Nathan, when I spoke to a potential competitor uh, to the supermarkets, and they made the point to me that there were basically two things they needed, the land to build and the goods to sell. Yeah. And we've dealt with the covenants and and the fact that that was restricting the availability of land, and now we're dealing with the goods to sell through the wholesale changes. So these are the two of the really big things we can do to make sure people have cheaper groceries. I mean, what sort of sanctions would be able to be applied to the grocery uh, by the Grocery Commission if they don't cooperate? Essentially, what the Grocery Commission will be able to do is actually impose regulations to force the matter. So actually say to them, you actually have to supply these people and would then be able to work through what the prices would actually be. Now, clearly, you know, we would rather this is something that can be worked out. This is, you know, ultimately, these are still businesses. They're still commercial operators. They're still actually competitors. But if they're not prepared to open up what is a critical element of this process, then we will use the power that we have to regulate to make them do it. Okay. Just for us listening, we go, that sounds like a good thing. How will that, you know, make something like, I don't know, a can of baked beans or a bag of potatoes yeah. cheaper? So ultimately, you know, when we all go into the supermarket, what we're doing is we're going into the retail arms of the, essentially the two big operators. And as, you know, what they can do, because they buy in bulk, they buy up wholesale, they get a direct supply from suppliers, they can create economies of scale to be able to do that. If we've got other competitors who can get similar access, then they start to compete at that retail level properly. And, you know, I heard um, on, on the news yesterday Day, the night and day uh, team of the operators who originally came out of Dunedin who are the kind of smaller scale competitors who just can't create that wholesale offering, you know, or that wholesale service that allows them to create a retail offering that's competitive. They could now do that along with a bigger competitor who might be able to rival the duopoly we've got at the moment. So it's essentially about making sure that they can access the goods at a fair price. It'll be commercial price. It'll, you know, it'll, it'll reflect the cost of getting it for the big duopoly, but it just means then the competition happens at the retail end, just like it does in a lot of other products, and that drives cheaper prices. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been quite proud of myself for getting the free cutlery because I've connect, collected enough stickers, but then at the same time, I'm like, I shouldn't be collecting these stickers this fast to get this. this is, you know what I mean? It's but, a trap, Nathan. It it's, it's a trap. <laughs> They're really good, though. Anyway, hey, let's, um, so let's talk about eventful week uh, in Parliament, particularly for your party. So, I mean, I, I know at the, uh, the resignation of Trevor Mallard, somewhat overshadowed by um, Gurav Sharma, uh, but also too with him using his opportunity, you know, with the new speaker there to stand up and then kind of stick the knife. Uh, and again, I mean, this could continue right through to the next election, couldn't it? Well, obviously that's entirely up to Dr Sharma and how he wants to conduct himself. What we had in the House uh, yesterday was a really special occasion. You know, Adrian Rulafe's election as speaker 
is a big moment for Parliament. It was a unanimous moment. Parliament unanimously endorsed him. Uh, Adrian's the second Māori speaker we've ever had in New Zealand's history. Um, we had a massive delegation from his Ratana people there today, uh, yesterday rather, and it was a really, really good day. And it's a shame that Dr Sharma decided to make it about himself. He only briefly did that because actually um, Adrian Rudolph in his first act sat uh, Dr Sharma down when he was drifted off the topic. The reality for Dr Sharma is he'll have fairly limited opportunities as an independent MP to speak. Today is one of those ones where pretty much it was open to anybody to speak. But he failed to stick to the topic and he got drawn back into line by the Speaker and that's what will happen to him. Yeah, they're good, those ratners, <laughs> tell you that. Um, so are, are you certain that there's no one in your party who's done anything wrong in this situation other than Dr Sharma? I'm confident that what we had here was an employment dispute. And those happen in Parliament. This particular employment dispute arose in the wake of the Francis Review. The Francis Review created a new process for dealing with employment disputes in Parliament, and Dr Sharma became embroiled in that. And I obviously don't know all of the details of that, but I'm confident that that process was playing out. I'm confident in my colleagues that they were doing the right thing. As the Prime Minister's previously indicated, we'll always try and learn. We always certainly would like to see things happen as quickly as they possibly can, but people are definitely being careful in the the wake of the Francis Review. Dr Sharma didn't like that process and reacted against it. But none of that was what happened this week in Parliament. What that was about was the way that Dr Sharma has behaved in the last two weeks. And he undoubtedly breached the confidentiality of the caucus, breached the trust of his colleagues, brought the party into disrepute. And so he was given an opportunity via suspension to be able to to undertake mediation to try to address some of the issues that he was raising. He chose not to do that. He chose to continue with his unfounded allegations. And there certainly was a sense of inevitability about his experience. So we will always try to learn from any situation how we can improve our processes. But the kinds of allegations Dr Sharma has been making, there is just no evidence for. Just very quickly, you got some words on on Trevor Mallard? I mean, obviously National's probably pleased to see the back of him. I know David Seymour reckons it's Ireland's loss that he's got a diplomatic role up there. But Trevor Mallard, what what do you do? Tell us about his time as Speaker and what it's been like. I think Trevor has actually been an excellent Speaker. There's a couple of roles the Speaker plays. One of those is the one inside Parliament, which people see, and that's the running of the House. And, and, And Trevor's had his critics there, but nobody on I know in my time in Parliament knows as much about the rules of Parliament and how they work. And I think he's tried his best to make sure that there were fair hearing for people in Parliament. The other part of the Speaker's job is the running of the building and the, the precinct. And I think of a couple of things there that Trevor should be remembered very warmly for. One is making the place more family friendly, people having babies in the debating chamber, but more than that, supporting people with young families. Dogs, as the number of people have named, um, he's allowed dogs onto the precinct, which is very popular and a lot of workplaces these days. But I also think of the workers at Parliament who Trevor made sure one of his early actions that they all got the living wage and for a number of those people they were very very low paid and it made such a difference in their lives and so he also instituted institu- Gated rather the Francis Review, which I do think will improve over time the experience of people working here. So I think on all those counts, Trevor deserves to be congratulated. He's a bit of a rough diamond. We all know that. He's said his moments, and we've all had our moments with him, but you know he has been a good speaker. I, I'm confident of that. Finally, there were reports of an off-duty soldier, a uh, New Zealand soldier, killed in Ukraine. I'm just wondering, do you know any more on that? 
Look, the only details I have on that are that, yes, there was a New Zealand soldier who, who the Defence Force have identified as having been killed in the Ukraine. He was not working for the New Zealand uh, Defence Force at the time. They were on, He was on leave without pay and obviously, you know, had made some decisions that led him to be in Ukraine. I do not have any more information about that, but I'm absolutely certain the Defence Force will be working uh, with his family around making sure that they are looked after. That's the Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson. Lots of feedback coming in, and, and you feel both sides of, of the fence here too, and OK, says she's worried about bags of excrement and bags of rubbish. Uh, Nesbitt and Gisborne says, yeah, but remember like people have come over here and they've worked and Pulitzer Prize winners have written about it. One here says maintain high volume, uh, low value, uh, and then whilst you're developing the high end and then reduce it over time. Good thoughts. Thanks for sharing them. Morning Reporters next with Susie and Corin. First up's back in your ears, a purple.